I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hi, listeners. It's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, you might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name, and as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've set that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. All right, happy Monday, Elise. Yeah. Well, I mean, 
it'll be Wednesday, Corey. Oh, that's right. Up. It's Wednesday when everyone hears this episode. Actually listens to yes, us. Yes, yes. Happy Wednesday <laughs> to everyone. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, and for us. For us. Not for you. Not for you. You have every two weeks, but we've had a little bit of a break and we are, we're, we're jumping on into Twelfth Night. We're very excited. Mm-hmm. So just like with our series on Macbeth, we are going to start off our series on Twelfth Night by going over what we've decided to call Stuff to Chew On, major themes, fun facts about this play that maybe can't take up a whole episode, mm-hmm. general things that when looking at this play are good to know. Right. And, and also dipping our toes into some ideas that we're going to talk about in depth. Uh, think of this as your high school or your college required Shakespeare course for Twelfth yeah. Night. Yeah. Our spark notes. Our spark notes. Yes. The Shakespeare anyone. Shakespeare anyone. Spark notes. Notes. Oh, Shakespeare anyone notes. Yeah. So. All right. Diving straight on in. Yes. This is our first play with a subtitle. Mm Mm-hmm. Twelfth Night's full title is Twelfth Night or What What You you Will. will. What does What You Will mean? Some say it could mean find your own title or Make of this play as you wish. A lot of the characters in this play are finding their own and they're, you know, making of this play as you wish. Olivia even says to Orsino in Act 5 at the end, even what it please my lord that shall become him, which basically when you translate it into colloquial language is whatever suits you or what you will. And that's how the play kind of ends. Yeah. In this play, we also have the element of spectatorship. For one, the audience plays a part of a co-protagonist with several characters. Mm-hmm. We're included in the conspiracy um, on Viola's disguise and the trick on Malvolio. Mm-hmm. And spectatorship is referenced frequently throughout the play. Sir Andrew Aguicheek and Festy talk about going to see blood sports such as... Uh, Woodcock trapped, trout tickling, badger hunting, and most famously, bear baiting. And Olivia herself compares her situation with Cesario as if she is being bear baited when Cesario is refuting her advances. She compares herself to the bear in the arena that the hounds would be um, attacking, right? I, I don't, I'm actually not, yes. a, I'm not a very big scholar so- on bear baiting. But well, that's you my... come to the right lady. <laughs> Go on, Elise. <laughs> um, so in case you didn't know, the theater district in London during Shakespeare's time, uh, especially once that theater was moved over the Thames, not the most savory, high class of neighborhoods. Lots of other entertainment was also going on. Correct. And one of those other things, there would be um, cockfighting, which would be let's let some roosters. roosters loose and make them fight, mm-hmm. as well as bear baiting. Literally, a bear is chained up in the center of arena and is forced to fight some dogs. Some very um, hungry dogs, right? Probably. Some very hungry dogs. Yes. So that's what your choices were for entertainment if you were a person living in London during Shakespeare's time. And when you were choosing where to spend your money... That's what the theater was up against. 
and and some theaters i do know some theaters would be playhouses and then when they weren't performing plays would double as arenas for some of these blood sports yes Mm -hmm. so it's it's like you've got broadway next to your monster truck rallies Mm -hmm. same location that's what's happening yep nothing against monster truck rallies but that's sort of like a good comparison for us today yeah yeah good comparison for us today Mm -hmm. just in like the pure like let's watch things get destroyed versus Mm -hmm. let's sit and watch a play Mm -hmm. and in a lot Uh, of cases with elizabethan theater let's go hear a play let's go hear a play theater again like we've talked about earlier was not let's go sit in silence and just watch these professional actors it was interactive there were more like a major league baseball with you know people walking around selling Mm -hmm. concessions drinking beer um, drinking beer having a good time you know which is choose to do that or choose to go watch uh some animal violence yep the choice is yours speaking of spectators (laughs) this play however not originally performed in the theater what do you mean elise (laughs) (laughs) uh this play was first performed at court there is a whole sub-genre of shakespeare plays that were originally written to be performed at court which didn't necessarily mean also uh, in a palace. It could be just in a great hall that would have been attended by courtiers. Mm. This one in specifically was performed at Middle Temple, which was sort of like a club for members of the English bar. Basically, if you belonged here, you could be called a lawyer. Right. A, a barrister. barrister. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it is one of four inns of court that is allowed to call their members barristers. Mm. So it's a it's a professional organization like uh I don't know uh like any pro- sort of uh Harvard legal society probably. Yeah. Um exa- yes, that's a good way. It's a legal society, it's a professional organization and all practicing lawyers have to belong to one. There's four of them in mm-hmm. England. So this play in particular was not performed originally or created originally for the intent of being at the Globe Theater. We know that this play was first performed at court for Elizabeth, and we know that because there's records of a diary from John Manningham, who was a fourth-year law student at Middle Temple, who wrote in his diary in February of 1602, quote, At our feast, we had a play called Twelfth Night or What You Will, much like the Comedy of Errors or Menekepni, in Plautus, I'm sorry, I'm butchering that, but most like and near to that in Italian called Ingani. And after this acknowledgement of the play and kind of placing this particular play in a place with a date, he also continues by raving about the prank. He loves Malvolio being tricked into, uh, you know, smiling and wearing the yellow garter, uh, yellow stockings and the cross gartering. He thought it was hilarious. And there are more diary entries that have been found that place this particular play in performances on specific days. Even King Charles, his second edition folio, it didn't give us a date that he saw the performance, but it gave us insight that his favorite character in this play was probably Malvolio because he wrote on his table of contents by the plays, the characters that he liked. So next to Twelfth Night, it says Malvolio. 
So this was a popular play at the time. Yeah. Also, fun fact, if you decide to look up Manningham's diary, we did not get the date wrong. Manningham's actual diary is dated 1601 Mm -hmm. because they were using the Julian calendar during Shakespeare's time. And years are slightly longer in the Julian Mm -hmm. calendar compared to the Gregorian calendar, which is still used today. So if you Google the original performance date, it will say 1602, which is the date we've chosen to use in the podcast. Mm-hmm. And But if you compare that to the date that Manningham wrote down, it looks like they're a year apart. Yeah. No one is making an error. It's just a difference in the calendar being used. When, when we can find those alternate dates, we will call them out. Yes. We'll try our best. The date of February is interesting because... This play is called Twelfth Night, and Twelfth Night is an actual annual event. Yes. It's possible that the first performance of this show was actually on the calendar date of Twelfth Night. Mm-hmm. Twelfth Night is the last day of the Christmas season, which is then taken over by the election of a Festus or a Lord of Misrule to preside over the maskings, interludes, music, song, and other forms of merrymaking. Mm-hmm. Yes. And in case you heard, Festus, Festi. Oh. Yeah. Did not catch that. Oh, did not catch that. Yeah, there's a lot (laughs) of these. Yeah, Hephaestus and Festi. And the title is more, it is definitely a reference to this holiday um, in terms of date, but it's also more than that. It's also a reference to that general carnivalesque revelry. Mm -hmm. This play was written at a time when people were anxious about the state of Queen Elizabeth's health. Uh, It was, you know, 1600, 1601 is around the time it was being written. And this play in particular really emphasizes the carnivalesque, topsy-turvy revelry of this holiday. Twelfth Night, the Christian holiday, technically celebrates the Feast of Epiphany, which in Western Christianity commemorates principally the visit of the Magi to Jesus, Hmm. and thus Jesus' physical manifestation to Gentiles. It's also called Three Kings Day in some cultures, as those are the three wise kings. That's interesting because this is for later on, but the number three is referenced a ton in this play. Ooh. Yeah. Also, Eastern Christians, which would not apply to England, but it's fun to note, uh, also commemorate the baptism of Jesus on this day. Hmm. Okay. And the traditional date for the feast is January 6th. Okay. Next January 6th, let's get prepared to celebrate Twelfth Night. Yes. (laughs) And this holiday, it's also uh, similar to Saturnalia, if you're familiar with the Roman holiday of Saturnalia, but that's for another episode. (laughs) In addition to the holiday of Twelfth Night, there's also a lot of interesting things to talk about with setting and geopolitics. Let's start with the setting. Yes. This play takes place in Illyria. And Illyria was not well-known. It was not a well-known location in Shakespeare's time. And it probably was able to disassociate audiences from the geopolitics of the time. Uh, Here's a little bit about Illyria historically. It is on the Adriatic coast. And it came to be known for piracy against the Romans, conquering all the places. And eventually it did fall to the Romans. And then fast forward a little bit later, I think it's like the 6th century. It became ethnically Slavic. And the Slavs renamed it Albania. So this area, Illyria, um, no longer called Illyria in today's day, but it was geographically Mediterranean on the Adriatic coast. It was ethnically Slavic and it was politically Italian. Italian with air quotes because Italy hadn't unified. But for the sake of simplicity, it's politically Italian. 
Illyria is kind of a utopian, no place that could be any place. And this really gives Shakespeare a lot of liberty to say what he wants to say without the consequences of the geopolitics of setting it in England or setting it in a place that's very real and not kind of mythological. Interesting. But then he does reference some real people. For example, the Italian Orsini family has a very similar name to Orsino. Mm -hmm. The Orsini family was a very well-known Italian family from way back in the Italian Renaissance, and their influence had spread wide by this time. Orsino's name likely would have suggested to the audience that the court system in fictional Illyria (laughs) is more Italian than English. Additionally, we know that a member of the family, Virginia Orsini, visited the English court in 1601, and that's the Gregorian calendar date, for those of you following along, (laughs) to participate in the Christmas revelries and would have been entertained by the first production of Twelfth Night. Ah. Queen Elizabeth actually danced a galliard, which is kind of dance, for him to show off how vigorous she was in her old age. And while it's likely that Arsino was named in his honor, we don't know if the character's actually based on him any further. I love that, though, the side of a play that was written while people were anxious about Elizabeth's health, standing up going like, no, 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 I got it. I'll show you these dance moves. I am young. I am totally fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's very funny. That's about all the background that we have. Yes. Now we can dive into some of the major themes that happen throughout this play. Mm -hmm. There's a lot. There are so many major themes, yeah. First up. In our long list. In our long list. Love and desire. Most of the characters in this play are motivated by love and romantic sexual desire. Mm -hmm. Additionally, love is shown as a cause of suffering. Many characters view love as a form of suffering. Starting off with Duke Orsino, if music be the food of love, play on. Give me excess of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let me just overindulge in love. Yes. Olivia refers to it as starving plague. Again, referencing blood sports and how she feels like a bear trapped in the bear baiting cage when dealing with Cesario. Cesario's rejection, yeah. And then, meanwhile, Malvolio and Antonio suffer from a lack of love mm-hmm. or unrequited love. Unrequited love, yeah. There's also this uncertainty of gender, right? This is one of Shakespeare's so-called transvestite comedies. That's the term that is used traditionally But it's one of these plays where you have a character dressing up as what would have in Shakespeare's time been called transvestism. Viola deciding to dress up in her brother's kind of image to navigate the world. And this uncertainty of gender confuses Olivia, Orsino. There's a lot of homoerotic undertones. And then Viola herself as Cesario is compared to uh, Narcissus, who would have been a... um, Greek character who is in between the lines of being female and male. And then you also have, while male presenting, Orsino saying that Cesario has Diana's lips, right? In addition, when Viola is dressed as Cesario, she is pretending to be a eunuch. Therefore, as Cesario, Viola is still not fully a man and not fully a woman, existing in the gray of the binary. So... There's this, mm-hmm. there's this kind of lack of binariness in this play that causes a lot of confusion. Just a lot of confusion. 
the whole plot of the show. The entire plot of the show. Then we have the folly of ambition. Malvolio specifically (laughs) is opportunistic and is trying to achieve a status beyond his means and his current state. But also Malvolio kind of ends in folly because of his ambition. Yes, exactly. It's not like it's not like Macbeth which had ambition as this tragic device that leads to everyone suffering. This is comical for all the characters on stage besides Malvolio and it's comical to the audience, us co-conspirators, us spectators. Mm-hmm. In a way much like Macbeth, Malvolio is punished for his ambition, except this time it's a punchline rather than right. a tragedy. Exactly. Um, This play also has a ton of disguise and deception. We see it, you know, straight out the gate, Viola disguising herself to navigate the world. And this disguise deceives those around her, like Olivia, like Orsino. You know, there's a couple of characters who possibly see through this disguise. You could play up that Festi can see through the disguise, but most everyone's deceived. But you also have Olivia disguising, right? She's Mm -hmm. suffering. She has the loss of her father and her brother and... She's wearing traditional morning blacks and she's got a veil that she's using to disguise herself. In many productions, they give her many handmaidens who are also wearing veils. So that moment when Cesario asks who is the lady of the house, it's because there's just a bunch of people Veiled wearing women. veils. Yeah. So she is in that moment in disguise. Mm-hmm. You also have Festi who is dressed up as Sir Topis, mm-hmm. the, the parson in order to trick Malvolio in the darkroom scene. Right. And, of course, there's the entire deception of the plot against Malvolio, writing letters pretending to be somebody you're not. Mm-hmm. Mariah using the fact that her handwriting is similar enough to Olivia's mm-hmm. to play this prank. Mm-hmm. And you find out that Sebastian, when he first is rescued by Antonio, has disguised himself and deceived Antonio and calls himself Rodrigo. You have a slew of characters who are all disguising themselves, all deceiving themselves, and it happens very frequently in this play. Next up, there is madness. We see many accusations of being mad. Well, obviously with Malvolio getting locked in the dark room. Yes. But also Antonio and Sebastian have a back and forth accusing each other of madness because of the mistaken identity Antonio seeing Viola as Cesario and mistaking Cesario for Sebastian. Mm-hmm. And then Cesario thinking, it, calling Antonio mad. Yes, being like, he's a madman. I've never met this man in my life. Yes. And then Sebastian also feeling like the world has gone topsy-turvy because he's shown up in Illyria and this woman has told him <laughs> that she loves him. Hey, babe, let's and- go get married. Let's get married. Let's just do it now. And he's just like, I mean, I'm fine with it, but I might have lost my yeah, mind. Yeah, and then in the same in the same scene where he's also questioning his madness, he's like, well, maybe she's mad. And then it's like, no, if she was mad, how is it that she's able to control everyone in her household? If she's mad and she's got her control over her household, she's really good at doing what she does or everyone else mm-hmm. is mad. So Therefore, I, the, I must be mad. I must be mad. Yeah. yeah. Another theme that we have is time The perception of time is different depending on who is talking about time. Viola decides that she's going to just trust time. She says this knot is uh, that. Sorry, Elise, I want to get that quote. Uh, Time 
Thou must unravel this, not I. It is too hard and not for me, for me to, to untie. untie. Yeah, yeah. I just don't have it memorized. I, I don't know where that came from. I'm so sorry. That's okay. I, I've, okay. I'm in. Give yourself 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're going to stick there. Oh, my God. Elise just had her own uh, grappling with time. Yep. Uh-huh. Oh, time, thou must untangle this, not I. It is too hard a knot for me to untie. You also have Olivia, who is uh, who sees time with anxiety as she's trying to get Cesario to say yes. Once Cesario has said yes, let's get married. Time is of the essence to Olivia. Uh, the priest is a kind of timekeeper in which he reminds us of, you know, moving towards death. Malvolio talks of temporal decorum. Sir Toby talks of timelessness. So there's a lot of discrepancies on uh, how characters view time. And on top of that, there's a discrepancy on the window of time that the play takes place. So you've got Curio talking to Viola saying, oh, it's been three days since you've been here. And Orsino is really, you know, really likes you. And then at the end of the play, you find out that it's been three months since Cesario has been in Orsino's court. So time is just not really um, clear. That also makes a lot of sense with the topsy-turviness of the play. Mm-hmm. So those are some big ones, big major themes. And then we have a couple things that are just sprinkled throughout the play. Mm-hmm. Sir Toby talks a lot about the legal system, his troubles with the legal system, Festy's had trouble with the legal system that mm-hmm. Olivia's had to get him out of. The captain we found out at the end of the play is put in jail because Malvolio has sued him. So that's another thing with the legal system. Yeah, Sir Andrew Aguchi can never get the legal system right when he's trying to defend himself against the duel and the violence. And then he, you know, incriminates himself. Antonio is literally not allowed to be in Illyria because he's a pirate and mm-hmm. has been banned by Duke Orsino. Uh, so there's a lot of small external from the play things to track of right. other things going on in these characters' lives outside of yes. the shenanigans. The that immediate actions. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, this play is also full of sexual innuendos. There's a lot of body humor. Uh, we see that a lot with Mariah and Sir Andrew. Um, that's re- Those are the two really big ones, especially with that accost scene. But there's a lot of sexual innuendos and body humor throughout this play. Oh, the C's, the U's, the T's, and P's. Mm-hmm. This, this play takes a lot of, has a lot of fun with, um, with dirty humor. Yeah. Then, of course, speaking of humor, there's folly and fools. This is the first, I mean, this is only our second play. But this is the first one with a true fool. The fool tradition is alive yes. and well in yes. Festi. He is a licensed fool, a licensed clown, and it is his, his job. job to be a fool. It's his job to be a clown. And there's a lot of um, question of being a professional fool versus being a fool by nature. You know, you've got Malvolio and what is being a fool? And the last thing that we just want to kind of acknowledge is that this play 12 tonight does a lot of um changing between prose and verse so beginning at the beginning of the beginning at the beginning beginning at the beginning of the play uh you have the characters (laughs) of the aristocracy speaking in verse to each other and you have members of olivia's house speaking in prose and one thing that's really interesting to note is that viola kind of code switches when she's speaking with Olivia and uh, Orsino, she's oftentimes speaking in uh, verse. And when she's speaking to Festi or she's speaking to members of Olivia's household, she's speaking in prose. So in a way, that's also 
topsy-turvy. Viola is living between the binary of prose mm-hmm. and verse. Yep, exactly. Like Twelfth Night, the holiday itself, there's a lot of stuff that shouldn't happen, but it does happen. Social ranks, gender ranks, verbal ranks, all of it's getting switched up in this play, and it's it's fun to watch. Yeah, and it's not just fun now. It was fun back then. The play was incredibly popular when it premiered, and for decades mm-hmm. later. And like we said earlier, King Charles I really enjoyed mm-hmm. Malvolio. But unfortunately, the play went out of fashion from roughly the 1670s until 1741 due to its silliness. During and after the English Restoration, there was this kind of general neoclassical taste in art of the highest rank. And this play was considered too silly to a lot of people. We actually have uh, some diary entries from some curmudgeons of the time who decided that Twelfth Night was too (laughs) silly. Yes, Samuel Pepys wrote the first ever recorded bad review of this play in 1661 after seeing the play with King Charles II. And then in 1663, someone apparently forced him to see it again, and he wrote that he took no enjoyment. (laughs) But Corey has the full quotes. He wrote, he, quote, observed at the opera a new play, Twelfth Night, that was acted there, and the king there. So I, against my own mind and resolution, could not forbear to go in, which did make the play seem a burthen to me, and I took no pleasure at all in it. So, so So he's saying that because the king's there, he can't say no even though he doesn't really want to go watch this play. And so he just sat there miserable. Yes, thank you for translating it. And then in uh, 1669, he was back for his third attempt, and his judgment is still more severe. Quote, Thence to the Duke of York's house and saw Twelfth Night, as it is now revived. But I think one of the weakest plays that ever I saw on the stage. So. Not a Not a fan. fan. One star. Yep. Would not see again unless, unless I'm, I'm forced, forced to, to the... said Samuel yep. Pepys. <laughs> it's like he's going, why does this keep getting revived? Mm-hmm. Well, lucky for him, a few years later, people would be... People yeah, people would agree, would agree with, him. with him. And then uh, the play had a uh, was revived in 1741. And since then, it has been wildly popular. One of William Shakespeare's most popular comedy plays to perform and to go see. And that wraps up our stuff to chew on on Twelfth mm-hmm. Night. And uh, we'll be jumping into our first topic of the Twelfth Night series in two weeks. So stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash ShakespeareAnyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, ShakespeareAnyone.com, Follow us on Instagram at ShakespeareAnyonePod or Twitter at ShakespeareAnyone. For Twitter, that's ShakespeareAny and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you.
from The Two Gentlemen of Verona, Act 4, Scene 4, spoken by Sylvia. Go give your master this. Tell him from me, one Julia, that his changing thought forget would better fit his chamber than his shadow. <laughs>